Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here today. I'm excited. We are in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, open up there. Do a quick recap of kind of where we've been so far in this Old Testament uh, series that we're marching through. <clears throat> we've looked at uh, different individuals that God has decided to tap on the shoulder and say, I'm going to use you in a very special way. We've looked at everybody from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, um, different individuals that God used to take the nation of Israel after it was formed, get them out of Egypt, bring them into the promised land. And I've talked a little bit about this so far, but, but this idea that just because you're living there doesn't mean you dominate the land. There's a difference between occupation and conquest. Um, and Joshua really, he took over a large chunk of the land, but we'll see even in today's lesson that there are, there are places in the nation of Israel, in this land area, the nation of Israel, that Israel does not control yet. Um, and what we've seen in this five-week series is Israel clamors for a king and God gives them Saul, and he immediately, I mean, just immediately starts to go down this path of disobedience. Um, and it's not, it's not all, and this is the thing that always bugged me about Saul, is it was not always massive disobedience. It was just, it was just a little bit wrong, right? It was, just, it was just a little bit wrong. And my dad... He, uh, he always uses the illustration uh, decon. How many of you guys know what decon is? Decon, decon's rat poison. And if you look on the back of a package of decon, it will say 99.9995% food, 0.00005% poison. And that's all it takes. It just takes a little bit of poison to do the job. And that, to me, it kind of sums up the life of Saul, is it's just, it's just a little bit of disobedience and that gets you far enough out of God's will that he can't use you in the way that he wanted to use you. So we see in this five-week series that Saul's stock is kind of declining while at the same time David's stock is increasing. And today we finally see David take the throne. Uh, and he becomes uh, the man that we kind of all know, King David. So, so for me, this, this lesson is really all about um, what would I do if I had it all? And that's your first blank. Uh, under the preview section there in your handout. What would I do if I had it all? Because literally, at this point, David has it all. He, he got anointed probably 15 years earlier by Samuel, and he's been working in and out of Saul's court, um, hiding from Saul, commanding his own band of rogue soldiers, living in caves, uh, and, and finally now he has come to the forefront and he's going to be crowned king, and he gets it all. And I know a lot of folks spend their whole lives wishing and dreaming and wondering about what would it be like if I won that mega million, $640 million a couple weeks ago, right? How many of you, that thought crossed your mind? What would I, right? It, I have to raise both of my hands, right? Because it crossed my mind several times. Um, and and I've, I think we've all heard the stories of those folks that have won the lottery and it wrecked their lives, right? Um, and hopefully, hopefully, that if we won the lottery, it would just shed a light on what's already in our heart, what our behaviors already are, and that would get amplified. And some of you are looking at me like, yeah, I don't know that I'd want that actually, so, right? Because that's scary, right? To magnify what is already there, to amplify that, to give it a larger voice, a larger stage, a larger audience. So David has that opportunity now. Um, and I think what we see him do are some really awesome things, 
And at the same time, you know, the title of this five-week series is The Rise of Israel. They are come to power. They have dominated the region. They are in charge of the land. And we start to still see a couple chinks in the armor. Um, And the title of the next Old Testament five-week series is The Fall of Israel. Because as soon as they get to that apex, it starts crumbling and it starts falling apart. So we'll see a little bit of that today. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Now, we've skipped over several chapters in the Old Testament, and at this point, David is already the king of one of the twelve tribes. But that's not really the whole nation of Israel, so... Those are awesome shoes, Joe. I like those. Are those new? Cool. Cool. Um, yeah, I don't, it was just random, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Love you, man. Um, so he's king over this one, this one um, tribe, and now these other eleven tribes are coming together, and they're going, "Okay, we see it. We get it now. You, you were supposed to be the one. You're the chosen one. Uh, this is where we're going with this." And they spoke to him, and they said, "Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, "You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel." Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Now, we don't really get from the text here that this is a big deal, but if you go to 1 Chronicles and read this same account, Chronicles talks about the fact that there are 340,000 people that came together to witness this. Um, Now, we just finished Easter at Coolidge, and there were about 7,500 people that were at Easter at Coolidge. I thought that was fantastic. But that is not a drop in the bucket to 340,000 people. I mean, this is is a massive, massive part of the whole nation of Israel. So everybody knew this. Verse 4, And David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Yeah, I don't know how well I'd have done at that. (laughs) Right? Because you, you think about, okay, so he started his training when he was 15, right? That's when Samuel came to him and anointed him, ish, 15-ish. So he had 15 years to prepare. I might have wanted 25 or 30, right? So he's still, he's 30 years old. So verse 5, in Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So, verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And immediately you're kind of like, whoa, 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 what? What, 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 what? Jerusalem. There's people occupying Jerusalem that are not Israeli. Yes, there are. This is 400 years after God told them to go into the land and to occupy it and to dominate it and to take control over all of it. And there are still 400 years later people occupying parts of Israel. So this was a a slow road of obedience, very slow. Um, And these people spoke to David in verse 6, and they said, You shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, verse 7, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Skip down to verse 9. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. So this is just important kind of as you go through the entire Old Testament. Jerusalem, here's your blank, Jerusalem is the city of David. So when you're going to see this phrase, the city of David or Zion, and all these terms are interchangeable as you go through and study the Bible. 
It says, And David built all around from the millow and inward, and David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. Now, when I think about King David, if you had to describe King David in one word, what would it be? Come on, interactive. I picked up my water, interactive portion. Here we go. Lots of wives, yes. We're going to get to that today, too. What else? Rich. David said warrior. We don't associate him with, like, mamsy-pamsy, I'll sit back and relax, and I'll let somebody else fight that. I mean, he, he was like, no, let's go. Right? The guys that hung out with him were guys that took, like, dead body parts off of animals and killed hundreds of people with them. You're like, I, I don't know people like that. So people like that hang out with each other. Right? Uh, yeah, uh, we're going to go watch that Saturday, but I'm, I don't know personally people like that, right? So, so he's this warrior king, and I've always, in my mind, had this mindset that probably the other kings and nations around him didn't like him too much, you know, because you don't want to mess with David, because they will come into your place, and he will get you, right? But the first um, political-oriented activity that we see him do is we reach, he reaches out, and he builds this bridge with this king of Tyre. Uh, and he's got this trade that's going back and forth. So Tyre is exporting uh, cedar trees and masons and carpenters and all these things. I grew up in Shelbyville, Tennessee. Uh, when I was a little bitty kid, the thing that Shelbyville exported was pencils. We were the pencil capital of the world. More wooden pencils were made in Shelbyville than in any other place in the world. Yeehaw, right? It's like, whoop de doo 20 miles away from where I grew up was Lynchburg, Tennessee. Erasers. <laughs> Erasers. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. So everybody knows what comes out of Lynchburg, right? Jack Daniels, yes. So that's, their, that's what they were known for. Well, Tyre was known for these cedar trees, just massive, massive forests. Uh, and this, you got to contrast that with this tent and tabernacle mindset that we've heard over and over and over and over all through the Old Testament up to this point, right? So you've kind of got this nomadic, wandering-type lifestyle and now, David builds a house of cedar. And this is a very clear political statement that we are here to stay. We are not here. We are not going to be moved. We are planting, and we are staying here. We are claiming this land is ours. So, to verse 12. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Verse 13. So it didn't take long, Beth. Right? Here we go. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. And it takes two and a half verses to list them all. Shema and Shobab and Nathan and Solomon. He's in there, okay? Ibhar, Elishu, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eladiah, and Eliphet. Eliphaletlet. I don't, I don't know. Hooked on phonics didn't work for that one. I'm, I'm not sure how to say it. Um, but there were a lot of kids, right? And they were not all from one wife. So is this a problem or is God okay with this? This is very much a problem. This is very much a problem. Again, I'll go back to it and go back to it and go back to it. You cannot name a single family in the Old Testament with multiple wives or wives plus concubines that had happy outcomes. There's not one. So when you hear people go, well, all those people in the Bible, they had a bunch of wives. Yes, they did, and they had miserable lives. 
hand in hand. This is the way this works. Um, David Gazeke had a great line. He said, uh, uh, a lot of people could have looked at this and seen and said that, you know, this is God's blessing on David's life because children were seen as a sign of blessing and a sign of God's uh, providential protection, and this is your blessing. But most of the trouble that came in David's life came from his relationship with women and from his children, right? Remember at the end of his life, who's he warring with? He's warring with his sons who are trying to kill him. Well, there's a reason they're trying to kill him. Because each one of them, they think that their mom is more important. She's the rightful queen. She's the rightful queen. So you've got all this political infighting in the family because he couldn't restrain himself. So, so he has it all. And what does he do? Well, he builds an alliance with a neighboring king, and he starts taking wives and concubines. So we see the chinks in the armor here. They're coming. So verse 17. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. I, love, I, I really love this part about David because there are so many leaders that are passive leaders, right? They kind of wait for some problem to happen and then they'll get engaged. David hears about a problem. I'm going to go march into your stronghold. Okay. It's kind of bold, right? Because the Philistines, are they known, what kind, of, what kind of people are they known as in the Old Testament? Peaceful, everything's cool, no problem, I'm okay, you're okay. No, they are. These are the people that spawned Goliath, right? Calling David a dog, um, calling, calling people out, these massive wars. They were constantly fighting with the Israelites. So verse 18, and the Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal Perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. <coughs> Excuse me. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord. He said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come, up from it, come, up, come upon them sorry, in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. What? I'm sorry, hang on. Marching in the tops of trees? What does that sound like? <laughs> marching in the tops of trees. Uh, the, the Jewish rabbis, uh, they have a really neat explanation for this. I, I think it's total and complete malarkey, but it's a cool explanation. They said it's the sound of the angels marching in the tops of the trees going out before David. It's like, it's actually kind of neat, right? You know, but the Bible didn't say anything that that's true, right? It just sounds kind of neat. So, so the sound of the march, so God tells him, don't go up, wait on me when you hear the sound of marching. So what is that sound? I think it's the sound of God at work, right? Because God is doing something here that David cannot do. He is going out before him. And what does God tell him to do when you hear that sound? What's the next phrase in the Bible? What does it say? Advance how? Quickly. So when you hear God is at work, move quickly. Right? This is not a, well, I wonder if we should get involved. Yes! <laughs> Very quickly so, because he has set the stage. He has laid it all out, right? He is literally, literally. Yes, somebody got it. All right, just making sure, right? 
Um, Parks and Rec, if you don't watch the show, there's a guy on there. It's a fantastic show. Look, my sidebar is over. Okay. He's literally waiting on God to mow these folks down so he can walk in and win the battle. So when you see God working, move quickly. We should act quickly. So what does the Lord say? So for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Which is basically to say they got out of the land. He pushed them back out of the way. They are no longer a threat to this area. So 2 Samuel chapter 6. <clears throat> so we see this political alliance. We see chinks in David's personal armor. We see successes on the battlefield. And we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6. It says, And David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So there was a problem. And the problem at this time, and we've, we've skipped over this in the Old Testament, the problem at this time was that the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which is an incredibly sacred object for the Old Testament uh, Jews, <clears throat> it had three things in it. Help me out. What were the three things in the Ark of the Covenant? The staff of Aaron that budded, right? With it budded, and be like, so he had this stick, right? And he throws it down in front of Pharaoh, and it sprouts leaves. And everybody's like, okay, that's cool. We should keep that. Right? Um, and then there was something else that they ate, a jar of manna, right? So I don't know why they hung on to that, because they were all sick of it by the time it was over with. But they decided they should keep some of that, too. Uh, and then these pieces of stone that had some stuff writing on them, the Ten Commandments, right? So these are the, the tablets that, that Moses wrote on. And all this is in this box. And this box is like three feet by two feet by two feet or something. It's overlaid in gold. And Leviticus and Numbers give all the, I mean, it's, there's a lot of directions and how you're supposed to handle it and who's supposed to carry it. And you can't just be a, a Jew and carry it. You have to be of the tribe of Levi and carry it. You can't just be of the tribe of Levi. You have to be of the family of Kohath because that matters. I, I have no clue why that matters. I think God is just saying, this is special. This is representative of me. You treat these things with great, great reverence and respect. So there are all these rules about how you're supposed to carry it. You just, the thing had little loops on the side of it where the priests, where, where the Levites would slide these long poles through. It was kind of an ingenious idea on how not to touch the thing, right? So you slide these poles through these loops, and you get all these Levites that carry the thing. So they're carrying it without touching it. Because if you touch it, God said, eh, you die right there. It's a smite button, right? So they're, they're carrying through, and this is, this is how you're supposed to carry the ark, the smite button, right? It's in, Le it's in Leviticus, I think. So. <clears throat> so, verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. I'm sorry. Did that sound anything like what I just described? No, okay. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood and harps and stringed instruments and tambourines and cisterns. What's a cistern? Anybody know? I didn't look that up. Anybody know? Done once? Done twice? I have no clue. It's a mandolin. Albert! It's your baby guitar, dude. Come on. That's awesome. Wow. All right, 
on tambourines and baby guitars and cymbals. There you go. All right. Verse 6. It's the coolest thing in the world. Do you not hear it when he plays? It's like, oh, that is so awesome. So the thing is, this, if this thing's in the Old Testament, it's probably going to be in heaven. Dude, you got a job. <laughs> God ain't going to tap me to play anything in heaven. Not at all, you know. <laughs> so I think that's cool. All right, so verse 6. So when they came to Nacon's threshing floor. So somebody tell me what a threshing floor is. There's all kinds of, there's all kinds of symbology right here in the text, okay? What's a threshing floor? Separate the wheat from the chaff. So there's, there's a separation of good stuff and stuff that's not so good. So this is important here, okay? So what happens next? Right? Something happened. The thing hit a bump in the road. The oxen stumbled. Your translations say different thing. But the ark wobbled. This is a problem. And Uzzah does what Uzzah thinks is right, and he reaches out his hand to steady the ark. Did you see um, Indiana Jones? Yeah, you don't mess with the thing, okay? So Uzzah dies right there in the middle of this massive celebration with what are more than likely thousands of people accompanying the ark. This is the triumphal return of the ark of the covenant, the presence, the symbolic presence of God, right? And and somebody dies, So what if somebody had died in the middle of Gary's sermon last week at Easter at Coolidge? Actually, actually, no, no, no. What if, what if Sam Turnipseed had keeled over dead while singing his solo on the stage in front of 7,000 people? Right. What do you do at that point? Everybody's looking at Gary, and Gary's going, uh, Yeah, Daryl. <laughs> exactly. That was awesome. Because that's exactly what he would have done, right? Well, David gets mad, right? David gets mad, and he's very angry, and he's very confused, and like, what in the world is going on here? And there's a, there's a, a reality, I think, that David is learning. And David had to learn the very bitter lesson, here's your blank, that sincerity in serving God is not enough. Right? And this is a beast of a hard lesson to learn. Because sometimes you just want to jump up and start going and doing something. And sincerity is not enough. The truth part of this is critical. Um, This is a good thing done in the wrong way. So, so we get to verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now it was told King David, verse 12, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. <clears throat> okay, so we're going to try take two, right? And again... Generally, a lot of the stuff that you see in Samuel is repeated elsewhere in the Old Testament, sometimes with more detail, sometimes with less detail. This particular story is repeated elsewhere in the Old Testament with a lot more detail, and it talks about David does it the right way. Now, what we don't find out here is Obed-Edom's daddy's, 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 daddy's name was Kohath, 
and his daddy's 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 name was Levi, David actually took it to the right place. He had the right people transport it. They transported it the right way. He learned a lesson, which is critical for leaders, right? How many of you have had leaders in your jobs that uh, they made a mistake? Got to get a witness, right? Um, how many of you had leaders in your job that made the exact same mistake twice? And you're like, okay, all right, you know, maybe they weren't paying attention. And the third time, and the fourth time, and the fifth time. Fortunately, David makes this mistake once because it cost a man his life. I personally believe David's on the hook for this decision because he kind of drove this whole, probably the wrong word to use, uh, Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart, but David drove the, the decision to do it this particular way. And the second time around, he drives it the right way. He gets it done the right way. So, finally, we have this celebration, this joy, this party. In verse 16, Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter. Now remember, way back when, the story of David and Goliath, what was one of the prizes that you were going to get if you beat Goliath? Saul's daughter. This is her. Okay? It's, it's Michal in, um, in Hebrew. Okay? So this is the trophy wife, literally. Right? This is his trophy wife. I thought it was funny, but David Barber laughed. That's awesome. So she looks through a window. So if she's looking through a window at this, is she participating? Okay. And saw King David leaping and whirling. Anybody have a different translation there? Dancing. He was dancing, right? The New King James just can't bring himself to say it. It's just... Right, He was dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. He might have been. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe she was a good dancer. I don't know. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when he had finished all those burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He distributed among the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the men and the women, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. Now, I'm not so big on the cake of raisins. I don't know what that tasted like. But bread and meat to the entire nation? That would have taken a lot of money. That would have taken a lot of planning. That would have taken a lot of organization. Um, So all the people departed, everyone to his own house. And David returned to his house to bless his household. He's going there to do a good thing. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Hmm. It's good to see you too, dear. It's like, what a welcome on his probably up to this point, the greatest day of his kingship. And his response, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house, which includes you, to appoint me over the ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. So he turns this thing back around. So you have this incredibly unsupportive wife. 
in this incredibly uh, unsupportive is probably an understatement, husband. So what's the result of this? Verse 23, therefore Michael, the daughter of, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, you can take this two ways, um, right? You can say that God said, whoosh, closed up the womb, and you can say that David just visited the other wives and the concubines. I don't know how much or little of both were in play. To me, the text lends itself a great deal toward David visited other wives and concubines. Um, but it's an empty marriage. Uh, no, actually we don't. Um, there are several different spots in the Old Testament. That's a great question, by the way. There are several different spots in the Old Testament that list uh, the children of, of David, and they all say, and this was his mom, this is her mom, and all that, and she's never listed uh, as one of those, um, which is really sad. Right? In, in my mind, if you, if you read through the Old Testament as chronologically as you can get, she's his first wife. Uh, yeah, not much. He might have been up to as like 18 or 19 at that age. Maybe, maybe. So his first wife. No children. Very sad. Very sad story. So again, you see these chinks in this armor, right? You see this, everything's going great for the nation, but they're at the leadership, there are, there are troublesome spots. So 2 Samuel verse chapter 7. God's covenant with David. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. So this is it. This is the spot where David has it all. David has it all at this point. He's finally got peace with the nations around him. So this is where we are. And David said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. <clears throat> And Nathan said to David, go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David's looking around, and he's going, look, there's, there's like this tent that's housing the, all the things of God. This is a problem, because I have a better house than God does. Now, did God ask David to build a house? Answer on three. One, two, three. He did not. Is this necessarily a bad request of David's? No, not really. I think it's, I think it's, a, it's a great open look into his heart. What was his heartbeat? You know, how often do we struggle to do the minimum requirements of what the Scripture says? And David's trying to do so much more. Well, that's great. I mean, how different would the world be if God had to tell us as Christians, will you just guys take it easy for a little while and just relax? Just scale it, scale it back a little bit, right? And that's basically what God shows up to Nathan, and he tells him this. Um, he says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would, the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? It's kind of like, really? You can't contain me, but we'll go there, for just so you understand. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore... Thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts. So this is the beginning of this epic statement that God says. This is a covenant that they're going to enter into. And I want you to notice, I want you to pay attention to two different things. Pay attention to what David has to do in this covenant. And pay attention to what God has to do in this covenant. Because there's two sides in a covenant, and you've got to make sure you understand both sides. This is God speaking. 
says, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more, as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Isn't that kind of cool? You, you can't outgive God. Okay? You, you can think, oh, I'm going to do this great thing. I'm going to give God. And God's just going to turn around and maybe give you that back. I don't know. So maybe you wish that, God, I want to give you that $640 million Mega Millions lottery ticket, right? No, that, that, you didn't laugh. That was a joke. But okay. Verse 12, God continues, when your days are fulfilled. So what does David have to do in this so far? Okay, just check it. So when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Who's that? Who's that? Solomon. There we go. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your kingdom and your house shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So what does David have to do? Nothing. He has to do absolutely nothing. And to me, this is the ultimate picture of salvation. Right? So what do we bring to this great relationship with me and God? Uh, I bring a sinner who is holy and completely incapable of doing anything. And what does God have to do? God has to do everything. Um, it is completely and totally on him to pull all of this off. Um, and according to all these words, according to this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So then in verses 18 through 29, David kind of has this responsive prayer back to God once he understands what's going on. And he refers to himself as, my, as your servant. He refers to himself in this prayer in the space of, what is it, 12 verses, your servant, ten different times. So we see this incredibly humble prayer, this prayer of humility back to God. Because David kind of gets it at that point. He's like, oh, you really don't need me, do you? Okay, I, I get it. Because that's if you read between the lines and what Nathan brings back to David, it's not a, God really needs you to step up to the plate and do this, because he's depending upon you. It's... No, God's going to do it, and he's going to look good doing it, and he's going to drag you along for the ride. And that's just because he's nice like that, right? And it's this amazing picture of, oh, okay, I think David kind of gets it here. So what's the point? Well, number one, uh, you might not get it all, right? You might go through your entire life and never get what you always wanted. Okay. And that's, that's a big deal to kind of reconcile yourself with once you kind of get to that point of, you know what, I, I'm okay with that. Um, number two, you might get some of it. You might get little pieces of what you always wanted. Uh, but number three, you might get it all. You might get everything you always wanted. And when you do, what are you going to do with it? What's that going to expose? How's that going to look? So here's my challenge. What do I do with that? Don't wish your life away. Because I know so many people that just go, well, if I only had this, and if I only had that, if 
and just this little bit more, then I'd be happy. Right? Trust me, guys. You'll always want a little bit more. It don't matter always. They asked, who was it, Rockefeller? Is that who they asked? How much is enough? A little bit more? Yeah. Well, he was a, a billionaire at that point. He just wanted a little more. Okay. So what do you do now? Get busy being the person God wants you to be so that if he ever decides to drag you through getting you everything you ever wanted and that gets magnified, there's something worthy there of being magnified. Does that make sense? It's this big, beautiful picture of David and how God just brought him along for the ride because it's not about David, but this awesome God that we serve that's going to do it regardless of what happens. It's a beautiful story, I think. So that wraps up that five-week series. Next week, we move into uh, the letters to the New Testament churches. I'm excited about that. It's going to be a cool study. We've got several really good speakers that are coming, and I'm pumped.